You're listening to A Prophet, a collaboration between Sakhlain and Al-Hujja Islamic Seminary. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming our patron by donating at sakhlain.org support. Next, we examine one of the very important events of the fifth year of the Hijrah. And that is called the expedition or the battle of Banul Mustalaq. Another name for this expedition or battle is also the Battle of Muraysi'ah. There was a tribe known as Banul Mustalaq. They came from the larger tribe of Khuza'a. They were the neighbors of Quraysh. They were basically between Mecca and Medina, so south of Medina. Now, reports were received in Medina that the leader of this tribe, Bani al-Mustalaq, his name was, his name was Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar. He was the chief of this tribe. Reports were received in Medina that he intended to besiege Medina. This tribal leader called on Arabs to gather, prepare their horses and swords and attack the Muslims. Many Arabs responded to this call. So a lot of people showed up to support him. The Prophet now wants to verify that these reports are correct. So what does he do? The Prophet sends a man by the name of Burayda ibn al-Husayb al-Aslami. The Prophet told him, go to this tribe and verify these reports that they indeed want to attack us. I have a question here. We know that Prophet Muhammad is connected to revelation. Jibra'il informs him of unseen things. Why doesn't the Prophet just verify that through Jibra'il? And so why does he send Burayda to actually go to this tribe and verify that they have the intention to attack Medina? Why does the Prophet do that when he is connected to revelation? He could just ask Jibra'il. So why bother send someone to go and secretly monitor their activities and bring back information. What's the wisdom behind that? Any ideas? There are some hypocrites who don't trust the Prophet, but the Prophet in the end, he is the leader of Medina. He could have said, Jibra'il informed me, let's leave. The companions would, would have left with him. So part of it, yes, in order to strengthen the hearts. What else? Any other lesson we can learn from this? Maybe that was the um, a way to set an example to really go through a secondary verification. Exactly. The Prophet is teaching Muslims, when you hear a report about someone, about anything, verify it. Don't just say, oh yes, I've been informed there's an attack. I've been informed someone is planning against me. I've been informed of this. Let me take action. The Prophet is teaching Muslims, whenever you hear a report, verify it. Make sure that it's true. Don't just rely on people. So the Prophet could have easily just asked Allah to inform him of what's going on and ask Jibra'il, but he wants to make a point that I, as the Muslim leader, when I hear a report, I don't just take action. I need to verify it. This was a very important lesson that the Prophet is teaching us. If we implement this lesson in our family life, 
our social life, our community life, we avoid most fitness and controversies. Because many times, someone brings you a report, tells you something, and it's not that accurate. And you take that as a fact, as it really happened. And then you take action based on that, and then you have a whole mess and you've created a chaos. So this is a beautiful lesson from the Prophet So the Prophet sends Buraida, one of his companions, he goes to the tribe of Bani al-Mustalaq and he meets Harith. Al-Harith is who? The leader of that tribe. He speaks to him. Now Buraida acts as if he has come to support Harith and to heed his call. He doesn't tell him I'm a Muslim from Medina. He goes stealthily, discreetly, and he acts as if he's an Arab who's heard his call, yeah, let's go and fight Muhammad. So Buraida was able to verify that indeed Al-Harith was organizing an attack. So he returned to the Prophet and he informed him. This is the second example. The Prophet here is teaching us that if you are working for the well-being of society and protecting believers, it's okay to go and monitor the activities of the enemies and bring news to the believing community because you are required to protect the community. Because someone could say, wait, this is unethical. He went and he pretended like he was a supporter of Al-Harith. He is protecting, you know, human life. He is protecting innocent people. So if sometimes you have to monitor the criminals or the evil ones to protect innocent lives, that's, that's mandatory, that's wajib. No, this would not go against the verse that says do not spy. Because here in this case, you are going to monitor the activity of an enemy who wants to attack your community and you want your community to be prepared. You want innocent people to be prepared. You're protecting lives. In this case, that verse about spying does not apply. That applies if you want to hurt someone, you want to expose someone, you want to wrong someone, do not spy on them. But if it's the enemies, you can definitely spy on them because that's how you protect yourself. You need to gather intelligence. Okay, so now the Prophet, he's informed that indeed Banul Mustalaq, this tribe, wants to attack Medina. What do you do? Muslims can't sit still, they had to defend their lands. So instead of waiting for that tribe to come to Medina and to launch an attack on Medina, the Prophet said, let's go out to them and stop them from coming. That's called a preemptive strike or move. So the Prophet mobilizes his companions and they march south towards the tribe of Banul Mustalaq. And they encounter this tribe by a very well known well, Bir, called Muraysi'ah. There was a well over there called Muraysi'ah. And that's where the battle happened. That's why this battle is called Ban, the battle of Banul Mustalaq and also what? The battle of Muraysi'ah. The Muslims were 700 in number. They had 30 horses with them. 10 of those horses belonged to the Muhajireen and, 10, and 20 for the Ansar. Amongst the Prophet's wives, Aisha and Umm Salama also joined on this expedition. The expedition took 28 days. 
from the time that the Prophet left Medina, he went there and he came back, it took about a month. Now the Prophet according to some reports, he appoints Zayd ibn al-Haritha as his representative in Medina. Some reports say he appointed Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, he told him stay behind in Medina and represent me. But we know that he appointed someone. And this demonstrates to you that when the Prophet would leave Medina, even for a month, he'd appoint a representative. Is it possible that the Prophet is going to leave for good without appointing a representative as other Muslims claim? The Prophet leaves for a month, he appoints a representative. You think he will leave this ummah without a representative? Now amongst these 700 people who joined the Prophet, many of them, not most of them, but many of them were hypocrites, the munafiqeen. Question, why would the munafiqeen join the Prophet on this expedition and go to battle? They don't believe in the war. They don't believe in dying in the way of God because they're not really believers. So why did they join? They wanted to be on the winning team and get the spoils of war. Because they knew that the Muslims are going to win. And those who go out to the battlefield, the Prophet awards them what? The spoils of war. So they wanted a share of that. It was a materialistic reason why the hypocrites would go. Okay. So now the fighting started with Bani al-Mustalaq. But it was very brief. The pagans started the war by shooting an arrow at the Muslims. Now the Arabs had seen the power of Muslims after Khandaq. So they realized that they could not win. So after a, beef, uh, after a brief skirmish, the fighting stopped. Ten of their men were killed from Bani al-Mustalaq and one Muslim was killed. And that Muslim, by the way, was killed by accident, by, mis by mistake. One of the Ansar, the companions of the Prophet, he mistook him for a pagan and he killed him. So all in all, 11 people were killed. Ten people from the pagan side, one from the Muslim side. So the Muslims, they achieved victory in the battlefield and they conquered their enemy. The Muslim took their war spoils and they also took their men and women and children and enslaved them. Some 200 households became enslaved. Now before in our previous biography classes, we've spoken in detail about slavery, enslavement, and the context behind such practices, why did Islam allow that? And what, what are the ways of enslavement that Islam recognizes? Unlike previous religions like Judaism, Judaism has types of ways for you to become a slave. For instance, do you remember one of them? If in, in Jewish law, if you take a loan from a Jew, like $1,000, and you're not able to pay it back, that Jew, your lender, can come and enslave you. He can take you as a slave. That was one method. Islam abolished that. No, Islam does not accept this as a form of enslavement. The only way that Islam accepts is if you have enemies, they wage war against you, and you achieve power over them, you can enslave them. That's the only way that Islam recognizes. Otherwise, you know, because of debt, Islam does not recognize that as a valid form of enslavement. Okay. So now they enslaved them, the 200 households. Some narrations say they were about 600, 700. We don't exactly know, but several hundred. The spoils of war were 2,000 camels 
and 5,000 sheep, this was distributed amongst the Muslims. If you remember in our previous classes, we spoke about uh, Juwayriya bint al-Harith. Juwayriya, the wife of the Prophet she became his wife after this expedition. Al-Harith, the tribal leader, his daughter was who? Juwayriya. She became enslaved. She was taken as a captive. And she was given to Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shamas and his cousin. Because when the Prophet would divide the war spoils, these women were also divided as what? As slaves. They are, they are also part of the war spoils. So who was she given to Juwayriya? Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shamas and his cousin. They told her, if you give us money, X amount of gold will free you. Islam allows slaves to buy their freedom, by the way. If you can, as a slave, you can somehow make some money. You can go to your master and tell him, I'd like to buy my freedom. Let's say for 100 dinars, 50 dinars. That's allowed in Islamic law. So they gave her an offer, or maybe she made the offer to them, but they both agreed. They told her that if you give us X amount of money, X amount of gold, we'll free you. So she came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa She told him, Ya Rasulullah, I've been enslaved and they've made me this offer. I don't have the money. What do I do? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi said, I will pay it on your behalf. So the Prophet paid it on her behalf. They freed her and then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi married her. This is one of the wives of the Prophet, Juwayriya. One hadith states the Prophet gave her a dowry. What was the dowry of Juwayriya? The Prophet told her, my dowry to you is that every prisoner of war from Bani al-Mustalaq, from your tribe is going to be free, will free them. Some narration states 40, the Prophet told her, I will free 40 from Bani al-Mustalaq. Some narrations say one, in any case, someone was freed through this blessed marriage, including she herself. So the Prophet marries the daughter of Al-Harith. Remember, Al-Harith is who? Her dad was the chief instigator, the leader of Bani Mustalaq who decided to go and fight Islam and Muslims. So the Prophet ends up marrying his daughter. Now we talked about why the Prophet married her and the details of the marriage. And there are different versions that, that have been mentioned about this marriage, but this marriage served two amazing purposes. Number one, it strengthened the ties between Medina and Muslims and Bani al-Mustalaq. Now they had strong ties because Bani al-Mustalaq realized Muslims are good people, they're merciful people, and their prophet married one of our girls. Therefore, we will collaborate with Muslims, we'll have a good relationship with them. So it served that. Number two, when the Prophet freed Juwayriya, because it's through his blessings that she earned, earned her freedom, the, the, the historical narration state 200 women on that day were freed by the other Muslims. So every Muslim who received a female slave as a result of the war, to follow the footsteps of Rasulullah he freed the, the female slave. So through this blessed marriage, the Prophet had 200 slaves earn their freedom. What a blessed marriage.
This was another reason why the Prophet married her. And we, we've spoken about this in the past in detail.